pastors this week. Uh, good morning. It is great to be with you today. Uh, I just want to thank Andy specifically for the last three weeks uh, preaching. Uh, I, I remember back in the day where I did not have an Andy. Uh, I didn't even have a, a like Andy, even a small version of Andy. So there was times actually where we would go on vacation for the two weeks and I would come back in the middle of vacation and drive from the UP, preach, and then drive back up. So I am so grateful for him. He does such a great job. I don't take that, um, that blessing uh, lightly. So glad to be back in the pulpit, uh, not preaching. This will be the f- first time I preach in four weeks. I-, I miss it. I love it. It's an area that God has called me and equipped me, and I really love doing it. I, I will say initially, though, not that excited about today's passage. I remember I was on vacation, I was devotions, I hadn't really thought much. It had been a while since I planned uh, out how we were going to go through Matthew. And then I looked, and right there, divorce was the sermon I got to walk back into. So during vacation, I reached out to Annie. I said, hey, I'm thinking we preach out of order. So I'm really feeling compelled to preach on lust. So I'll preach on the lust, you'll preach on the divorce, and he wasn't buying it. He said, I'm sorry, I already started, I can't stop. So, um, so yeah, but we believe that all of Scripture is God's Word. We believe that it's useful for teaching and training in righteousness, and we believe that. And one of the reasons we preach through books in the Bible is so we cover stuff like this. Because let's be honest, this is not a section that I'm going to naturally go out of my way and say, you know what, I'd really like to preach on this week, divorce. But when you go through expository preaching, you're going to cover a bunch of subjects that you don't want to. And and as I spent the week uh, working on, uh, meeting with the Lord as I'm preparing, I think uh, though it's a very serious subject matter, I'm really grateful uh, to, to preach his word to you today. So with that said, we are in Matthew chapter 5. I don't think I ever introduced that. I just assumed you guys knew where we were going to be. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. If you don't have a Bible, please pick one up on the resource table. You can follow along with us as we continue on in our sermon through the Sermon on the Mount. So we're at Matthew 5, 31 to 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife... Let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Let's pray and ask for God's anointing on our time. God, as we come before your word, we pray that you would give us divine light to see, that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say. Lord, we know that the subject that we are going to be approaching today is one uh, that is impacted almost everyone here in some capacity. In some sense, we know someone who has been divorced. So this is something that is real, it's personal. So we pray, God, that we would take it seriously, that we would ultimately hear your message to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
as I, as I just prayed, uh, divorce touches most people's lives in some capacity. I think I read a statistic like eight out of ten people have had some connection to divorce, whether it's them personally, uh, their brothers or sisters, like there's just a connecting point. Me personally, divorce is very real. I grew up in a divorced home. At the age roughly of six, my parents divorced. It was not an amicable divorce, uh, especially from the side of my dad. My dad had a, an animosity towards my mom uh, forever. So it, I grew up in that. To be honest with you, it is hard for me to remember a time where my parents weren't divorced. I don't remember much in those first five years uh, that didn't include, you know, my parents being separated. Uh, several family members, I've had uh, my uncles, they got divorced. So I remember having different aunts at different seasons in my life. As a pastor, uh, I officiate weddings, and unfortunately, I believe this is the right number. Only two marriages that I've officiated have ended up in divorce. One was two unbelievers that I married. I'm willing to marry two unbelievers. I'm willing to marry two believers. I'm not willing to marry a believer and a non-believer. And the two unbelievers, unfortunately, ended up divorced. And that is sad. Uh, but the other marriage that ended in a divorce was a friend. Uh, and that one, I, I don't say it haunts me but one of the worst moments of my pastoral uh, life of 18 years as a pastor of Covenant, that was it. Uh, and even in our midst, I mean, I look out, I know there's, there's divorces, there's, uh, so this is real. And, and I, I share all of that to say what we're about to look at, I do not enter into this subject lightly. Divorce is personal. It's emotional it's complicated, it is awful, it's terrible. As a divorced child, it stinks. And it's not God's design for marriage. I think what it is, is it's a constant reminder to you and I that we live in a fallen and broken world and that every single marriage consists of two sinners being united before God and man. So right there from the beginning then, marriage is difficult. It is, in some sense, feels like it's set up for failure apart from God's saving grace, apart from the Holy Spirit. So what we're going to do today is I think we want God to speak on the subject. He's the one that wants to be our authority on the matter. He desires to have us have an exalted view of marriage. Because I think that's what Jesus is doing here. He's exalting marriage. He's exalting God's idea of righteousness and holiness. So that's what we're going to see as we see his thoughts on marriage covenant. Uh, we're going to break up the passage really simply. We're going to first of all look at the current view towards marriage and divorce. And when I speak of current, I'm speaking of the, the cultural current view that was going on in the first century. But ironically, in God's providence, the current view of marriage and divorce in the first century, guess what? Not much different than you and I in the first, in the 21st century in 2023. So we're going to see the current attitude towards marriage and divorce. And then, and this is what's really important, we're going to look at Christ's attitude towards marriage and divorce and what he has to say on the subject. So let's begin 
as we look at the current attitude towards marriage and divorce. I, I do need to make a statement. We cannot, nor will we, address every nuance to the subject today, okay? We're just, we don't have the time. So I'm, I'm, we're not going to deal with every hypothetical scenario where he was married and she was married and now they're married now and like we're not going to do a chart and figure out, well, in this case, this is how you do it and in this case, that's, that's not what we're doing, okay? Also, if you're a student of the Gospel of Matthew, guess what subject we get to approach again later in Matthew? Guess. Divorce. Well, so to be honest with you, I actually worked on two sermons this week. I worked on today's sermon, and I worked on a sermon that we'll be doing, Lord willing, sometime next year in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19 is going to be much more developed from Genesis. We're going to look at God's intent, the, the beauty of marriage in the garden, and what God was doing. So it will be, there'll be two separate sermons. This will not be repeat once we get to Matthew 19. But we're going to talk about the subject again then. So, so be prepared. Now you are welcome after this sermon. Send me an email this week and say, hey, I'd really like you to cover some of these other issues related to this. And maybe we'll be able to bring those into the Matthew 19 sermon. But I think ultimately what we want to do here and now is let God's word speak on the matter. So with that said, let's look at verse 31. Let's look at the immediate context, because this is key. For us to understand what Jesus is doing, talking about divorce for two verses, it's important for you and I to understand the immediate context. He says, it was also said. Have we heard that before? It was said. Last two weeks of Pastor Andy preaching, right? He said that. It was, it was said. Now, I, I think what Jesus is distinguishing is what was said versus what was written. Okay? Because elsewhere in Matthew, we've seen it a bunch of times, it was written. And when we're saying it was written, we're, we're talking about God's word. And we're often talking about scripture being fulfilled, that prophecies were being fulfilled. What was said, I think, is talking much more not of necessarily what was, was written in God's word. It's what was said in Jewish tradition over the last three, four hundred years going into the first century. And Jewish tradition was ultimately usually some portion of God's word mixed with a whole bunch of man's ideas and thoughts and, and add-ons. And what we see in the immediate context is there was an ongoing contrast between God's law and man's law. And God's law was much more intense. God's law was much more uh, serious, much more exalted. Uh, last year, so several years, we had, one of the things my kids' school has is the Great Shake. It's this speech meet that ends up into this contest. It's a fun thing, but on the speech meet day, historically, I've helped judge. So I go there, I listen to a hundred, give or take, some years more, some years less, kids' speeches. And it's pretty fun, gifted kids. Uh, not everybody's really good at it, but well, this year I did not do the judging. I got the opportunity to compile their scores. Yay for me. So as I'm going through it, the thing I noticed, it shocked me 
was the range of judges amongst parents and grandparents. One person in particular, I remember, I listened to it. It was a pretty good speech. Not spectacular, not bad, but man, very polarizing apparently to parents and teachers or the, and the, the grandparents. I remember one person gave him a 24, and a 24, 25 was the scoring range. 24, that's really good. I think it was a little high in my own opinion. Comparing it to other kids, I'd probably get 22, 23, but it was really good. Then one parent, 12. I was like, oh my goodness. Like 12, like as long as they spoke the speech, nobody should have been getting 12s. But this person like was, was very strict in their judging. You see what we had going on in the first century with the Jews, the Pharisees, the scribes, is they had a very loose judging. They were giving everybody 24s and 25s. Do you understand? That, that was what was going on. And that's why Jesus is addressing this. Because they're looking and saying, you know what? I haven't killed a person ever. I'm good to go. And what did Jesus say about that? Have you ever been angry? Beware of judgment. Have you ever called your brother full, guess what? Guilty of judgment. Kind of the idea of murdering in your heart. And then they would look and say, you know what? I've never committed adultery in the context of marriage. So, hey, I'm good to go. And then Jesus said, oh, have you ever looked at a woman lustfully? Guess what? If you've done that, you're guilty of adultery in your heart. And that's what he's confronting. He's confronting that they, they had this idea that they were in good shape. Listen to the parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, he prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get and I think the danger as we start talking about this, now mind you, we're, we're getting to the divorce element, is that you and I, I think we have a tendency to have too high a view of our law keeping. Too often we look at our other person beside us and say, I'm glad I'm not like him. You know, I'm at church every Sunday or most Sundays. I read the Bible. I pray. I do all of these things so I feel good about myself. And he's, he's confronting that. And what he's doing, he's not just confronting it, he's raising the bar. In my driveway, we have a basketball hoop. And the basketball hoop that we have can be lowered. And I, I don't love them lowering it. One, because I feel like the more you jump and hang on the rim, it's going to eventually break. It wasn't cheap. Uh, but they love doing it, especially some of my, my even my older kids, because it makes them feel better about themselves. Like, I was dunking. I was like, it was seven foot, dude. Like, it's not, I can dunk it at seven foot. Not that impressive. And I think that's what the Pharisees were. They were playing on a seven foot hoop. They were just looking. It was, it was all outward focus. Very rarely discussing anything in the heart. And Jesus constantly was confronting that in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 23, 27. Listen to what he says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. 
You're like whitewashed tombs. Outwardly you appear beautiful, but within you're full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So before we discuss marriage and divorce, I I want us to understand what's going on. God is raising the bar in this passage. Big picture. The, The purpose is he wants them to have a view of righteousness, of holiness, of godliness that is lined up with God, not man. That was the problem that he was constantly seeing happening amongst our people. There was such a low bar, such a low expectations, that as long as you kind of were religious, pretty much on the outside, you're good enough. But Jesus knows you'll never be good enough. Galatians 3.10, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of law and do them. So what Paul is saying there is if you do not perfectly obey God's righteous commands, you are guilty of them. As a result, judgment and wrath awaits you, that you're missing the mark, that you need Jesus. And I think that's the thing we need to constantly be remembered Reminded of is that we need Jesus. Today, after this service, we're going to go to the Rikos and we're going to have a baptism service. And the two individuals that are being baptized, one of the questions I'm going to ask them is, why do you need Jesus? And both of them, I've, I've, I've talked with them, and the thing I've really tried to stress, you need Jesus because you are a sinner. Not because you have your act together, not because you're spiritually healthy and Jesus kind of comes along and helps you a little bit. No, you were dead in your sins and you needed to be forgiven, you needed to be raised and to walk in newness of life. And that's what Jesus is confronting here. So I think before we even discuss the matter, I I do want to challenge each and every one of us, do you need humbled Do you have to heighten the view of, of where you are spiritually? Do you exalt God's words and, and God's ways? Because that's the immediate context of our passage. All right, so let's talk. Let's get to the nitty-gritty. Let's now look at the implied concern. Let's look at the implied concern. He says, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. As I said, what he's talking about is not necessarily just straight up a a misinterpretation of God's word. He's challenging their Jewish tradition, what was said. And what was said was this very low view of marriage and a very weak view, a very tolerant view on divorce. First of all, the concern was divorce had become common practice. It had become common practice in the first century. Uh, I don't know about you, if you remember 2020, kind of a big year. It was, there was this thing, what was it, COVID? Is that, was it? Yeah, COVID, right? But you, if you remember early on with COVID, did everybody have COVID? No, it was kind of a slow process, and you would hear like, hey, they have COVID, they're not too sick, or hey, they had to go to the hospital. And, but then over time, what was very the exception, what happened? It became the norm. So you're, you're hearing people have COVID, 
And then you're hearing a little bit later, they've had COVID again. And it came to a point where it felt like, now maybe this wasn't accurate, everybody in some capacity probably had COVID. Now, divorce hadn't reached that levels in the first century, but it was pretty close. I was reading some, some like historical look backs, like with Josephus and that. Divorce had become so prevalent, it would probably rival, if not be more prevalent than today in the culture. It was normal. We see this trajectory going on in the book of Malachi. That's where we read uh, the verses in some translations where it says God hates divorce. Malachi 2.14, the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, for the man does not love his wife but divorces her. And here's the deal. Divorce in the first century was not just this one-time deal. What was happening with the Pharisees, what was happening with some of the scribes and the, the Jews is they would divorce, give the certificate, which we'll talk about a little bit, and then go and, and remarry the next person that they wanted to be with. They would get tired with that person for whatever reason. They would divorce them, give them a certificate, and then they would go on and they would do this. And it would not have been uncommon where we kind of talk as somebody in like the celebrity world, Elizabeth Taylor, I think she was married eight times. And it's just kind of like, oh my, can you, that's, that's not good. It became kind of a, 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 a common practice amongst the Jews that they might have been married four, five times. It was not a big deal. It become common. Do you remember what Jesus warned us about earlier in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, you are the salt, right, of the earth. So don't lose your saltiness. You're the light of the world. You're a city on the hill. How much salt light is taking place amongst God's people if divorce is widespread and rampant? You understand the concern? Because it becomes, let's be candid, let's be honest, it becomes very much a conformity to the pattern of the world. You see easily how conformed we often are. Think of your own life. Not, not limit ourselves to the subject of divorce. How easily do you conform to the world? How different are you? As we look at your life, and line it up to your unbelieving neighbor, your coworker. is there much difference between, besides the fact that, hey, I say I'm a Christian, I go to church on Sunday? Because that was the problem. There was this, this uniformity of God's people with the culture at the time that they were divorcing like it was not a big deal. And not only was it a common practice, and here's the, here's the bigger concern, not maybe bigger, but an added concern, there was a clean, and I use quotations when I say that, procedure. They had made divorce easy. And then we start seeing the, the problem. It's, it, 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 it's the time of uh, school starting back. Parents, who here is all the school supplies already? Raise your hand. Who here does not have all the school supplies ready? Raise your hand. My people. It's a pain. Got six kids. 
six different grades, different classes, different this, different that. And I always will remember the commercial Staples. What does Staples have? They have a button. It's called the what? Easy button. And like if there was a real easy, I mean, I know I can buy an actual button that says easy, but when you press it, it doesn't do anything. Maybe lights up. But man, if there was an easy button where I could do that and I get home and all the supplies are all organized for school coming up in a week, I would do it. Well, what they had done amongst the Jews, and this is sad, friends. This is problematic. They had made divorce easy. It was nice and neat, did not require courts, and actually it was one-sided. Just required the husband deciding that he was done with his wife and he would give her this certificate of divorce. Where did they come up with the idea of the certificate of divorce? Deuteronomy 24. And they're missing the point as we're going to talk about in a little bit. But Deuteronomy 24, this is Moses. He says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. So there's this point where Moses ends up giving them the certificate of divorce as an option to part ways with their wife. Now, indecency doesn't necessarily mean full-blown adultery. And we also have a tension here in all of this, because initially Old Testament, adultery would have been punished by what? By death, by stoning. So there's a point where it kind of transitioned from stoning is the consequences of adultery to divorce. And what they would do is they, they started with this kind of, these verses, and they started and they expanded the idea and the concept of divorce and the idea of the certificate of divorce. And, and I'm not making these up when I say these were some of the grounds to give your wife a certificate of divorce. She ruined dinner. So burn dinner, that'd be grounds for divorce. Didn't find her attractive anymore. Gained a little weight. Didn't like her. Found somebody else that was more attractive. If you were rude to your mother-in-law. I'm not making that up. These are real reasons that they would give a certificate of divorce to separate from their spouse. And all they had to do was write this certificate, give it to her, Hands were wiped clean of the marriage. Good to go now. That's what they had done. That marriage had, divorce had become easy. Starting to become first, not just first century. That, doesn't that sound like today's world? Not only divorce, we do annulments. Because it's easier and you don't have to use lawyers and as much and all this stuff. The difference today, it's equal opportunity. Back then it was so one-sided that the husband had all the power, now husband and wives, but then you have kids involved and custody, and it's a mess. But I think the problem here is do you have a low view of sin? Do you try to justify? Do you think you 
uh, have clean sin. So that's the current, then and now, I would argue, attitude towards marriage and divorce. Immediate context, God is exalting marriage. He is, he is strengthening the, the significance of going down the path of divorce. He's dealing with the implied concern that it has become widespread, it's become prevalent, and they thought they could just make it nice and neat and clean. But let's now, instead of that watered-down view, let's look at Jesus' view. Christ's attitude towards marriage and divorce. There is a very, first of all, there is a very limited exception for divorce. Very limited exception for divorce. Jesus says, but I say to you, so his word versus Jewish tradition, his word's kind of more important, right? I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality. Now it appears Jesus is giving one valid reason for a divorce. One valid reason to get out of that contract, to get out of that covenant. I think the most difficult contract I ever had to get out of was Bally's Total Fitness. I'm not joking. It haunts me to this day. When I thought I was just signing up to work out, I did not know I was signing up for the mafia. So we moved to Jackson, Mississippi for me to go to seminary and with my wife. Of all the things I was dealing with, I never thought that my biggest problem on the move from Toledo to Mississippi was getting out of my Bally's Total Fitness contract, but it was. So when I got down there, I had to prove that I had moved so many miles away from, and I think it was ridiculous. I think 50 miles, I was still obligated. Like, yeah, I'm driving 50 miles to go work out at your ridiculous place. Luckily, I think the closest Bally's was like 100 and something miles, but I had to do this back and forth, sending documents and everything. It was, it was so exhausting, and I finally did get out of that contract. Well, we see Jesus when he starts talking about marriage. He's talking about the covenant of marriage. As I said, he's exalting marriage. And he's stressing that marriage, even more so than a Bali's contract, is way harder way more strenuous, way more difficult than you're supposed to be able to get out of it. When he speaks of sexual immorality here, he's, he's definitely uh, referring to adultery, to unfaithfulness. And the reason is, and we need to remember this, and I think sometimes we don't appreciate, marriage is a covenant, right? We've looked elsewhere as we went through Genesis with the, the idea of the covenant, the suzerain vassal covenant, and they would cut animals and they would put animals on both sides and you'd walk between them. And if you break the covenant, you would be guilty uh, of it. And as a result, what happened to those animals should happen to you. So judgment and, and condemnation. And what, what marriage is, is that sense that we're entering into that covenant, that unfaithfulness is the means by which we break that covenant. Now, some people will argue, and there's kind of extremes on both sides of this, that there is no exception clause to marriage. It would be the idea, the theology of permanence of marriage. 
Uh, John Piper would be one person within the context of larger church that would hold to that. Uh, I, I, I don't agree with him on it because I don't think the Bible necessarily lines up with what he's saying. His two arguments is one, the exception clause is not in Mark or Luke. And it's true. If you go to Mark or Luke, it does not give the exception as an option in divorce. But I think there are reasons for that. One, the Jewish culture is the focus of Matthew. He's dealing specifically with the Pharisees who had watered down divorce, had watered down marriage. So he's addressing it specifically with that. Also, I do think in some sense, the idea of adultery leading to divorce had become kind of assumed. Uh, An example of that was earlier in Matthew, uh, when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, what was he going to do? He was going to divorce her. He didn't think much about it. And I mean, he's a godly, righteous man. And he just, it seemed like that was the practice. Second argument for the kind of the idea of permanence is that the unfaithfulness he's speaking of is in the context of betrothal. I think that's not a natural reading of the, the text of the Greek by any means. Also, if you look at the Old Testament when it was the idea of betrothal, betrothal, guess what happened if you committed adultery during the betrothal in the Old Testament? You get stoned like you were if you were married. So like making this huge distinction, I think it is, uh, it's a stretch. What I do value with the permanence of marriage and what we're even going to look here is that marriage is to be esteemed and valued. And, and, and we'll look at it in a second, uh, kind of the overall implications of that. Now, Paul gives one other reason, and we're not going to spend much time. Maybe we'll spend more time when we get to Matthew 19. But Paul gives another reason, desertion by an unbelieving mate. First Corinthians seven fifteen it says if the unbelieving partner separates let it be so so it's the idea that they leave the believer to not return and they go off and at that point that he or she would be at free in such cases as the brother or sister is not enslaved and and, and they're they're free so as we we think of this I, I want us to one ask the question who defines what is valid to us as Christians. Because that's what we're really asking. God, what do you have to say about this? Because I guarantee, because this is such a personal thing, if we went around this room, everybody's going to have some mixed opinions about divorce. And they're going to have their ideas and thoughts and their personal experiences and anecdotes. But at the end of the day, God's word is the one that defines what is right and wrong. Now, even though Jesus gives one valid reason for divorce, and this is where I want to stress and I want to beat the drum on. Though he permitted divorce in this particular instance, he does not command it or require it. Did you hear me? He does not command it or require it. He does not expect it even. And I would think one of the reasons I would argue that is as we look at the Old Testament the one particular relationship that he uses to describe his relationship with his people is, guess what? Marriage. And he highlights that in the prophet Hosea. If you're familiar with the story of Hosea, Hosea is the prophet, and God has him marry a woman whose name is Gomer. Well, what's unique about that marriage? Gomer is a prostitute. 
Oh, so he had her marry somebody who had a tainted past, but she's redeemed, she's reformed, she's a reformed you know, prostitute. Man, that would be tough to have that baggage, but for whatever reason, no, 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 and no. God has him marry Gomer, who is an ongoing prostitute, who is going to continue to be a prostitute. And she's going to continue to be unfaithful and unfaithful and unfaithful. And guess what Hosea is going to expect to be? He's supposed to be faithful. And he's going to continue, even though she's faithless and faithless. Did I say she was faithful? She was unfaithful. Okay. Yeah, I did say it. I'm thinking about what I said. She was unfaithful. He remained faithful. He continued to take her back again and again. And what God was teaching in this message is, that is you, Israel. I'm the faithful, faithful husband, and you are consistently unfaithful. Because here's the deal. If we're talking about this and we understand this and everything that we're saying, and God was using the exception clause, it would make sense that God divorced his people. Do you understand that? It would make sense. We're unfaithful. We're the prostitutes. I'm not going to put up with that. I'm going to divorce them, end the covenant, we're done. But that's not what God does. And I say that because what God does is he extends grace and mercy and patience and forgiving towards his unfaithful bride. Now, I'm not taking lightly what this means practically in the life of a marriage where a husband and wife, committed, one of them commits adultery. I'm under no delusions that it's simple to look at the person that you said I do till death I do as part in front of God and man to have that person break the marital covenant. It's, it's horrible. When I've sat down in counseling and heard those stories, it breaks my heart. It enrages me. I can't imagine what it would be like in those situations. And I'm not going to say that you can't ever get a divorce in that situation. I do believe God provides that opportunity, but he does not mandate it. He does not command it. Why? Because I think as we get the gospel, there needs to be a a willingness to at least take a time out and say, am I going to forgive them as Christ has forgiven me? Am I going to extend grace and mercy as God has extended grace and mercy? Is it going to be easy? No. It's going to be horribly difficult. For the couples that I know that there's been an adulterous relationship and they've stayed together, it has taken, and I'm not exaggerating, years of counseling and work to establish trust. And even then, there's still those feelings of doubt and insecurity as a result of it. Colossians 3.13 says this, Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord has forgave you. I think what God desires in that context is for you and I to fight for our marriage. That even when the covenant has been broken, to not so easily give in, not so easily throw in the towel. I know it's hard, I know it's difficult, but that's what I think God desires. What Satan desires is to divide and conquer. He loves creating adultery in marriages because from there, a lot of the times it doesn't get salvaged and saved. Matthew 19, when he talks about divorce, and they're like, well, didn't, didn't Moses say we could do this? Jesus looks at them, and the reason he did this, the reason he gave you this out clause is because of the hardness of your heart. 
Now, there are situations, and I know one personally, a close friend of mine, his wife was unfaithful, and she remained unfaithful. She remained unrepentant. She continued to be unfaithful. After the first unfaithfulness, she went on to other men and was unfaithful. And she kind of left, and like in that point, I feel like there was biblical grounds for him, though he fought, he did. It was commendable. He fought a lot more than I think I would have been willing to fight in his circumstances. But I think the big picture, what we see is God's intent is what he joined together. We don't let man separate. Even in the context of adultery, that somehow, some way, that God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he could redeem and restore and reconcile a broken marriage like that. Well, do you find it difficult to forgive? Do you ever consider your own unfaithfulness as a child of God? So limited exception for divorce. And here's the key. There are long-lasting effects. He goes on and says, so everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, listen to what he says, he makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And I think what we see here is the problem of sin. That it doesn't clean up easily, right? I mean, I imagine the cartoons, if you recall, where they're in a snowy winter environment cartoon and a snowball starts going down the hill, what happens? It starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Next thing you know, it's an avalanche, and it's going through the town and wiping out. That's, that's kind of what sin does. Think about this subject. We're talking about marriage and divorce and adultery and all of that stuff, right? Who's the character we studied for a while prior to the Gospel of Matthew? Who? David, right? Is this related all to David? Think of David. He commits adultery with Uriah's wife, gets her pregnant, finds out about the pregnancy, decides, you know what I'm going to do? I will end up having Uriah be with his wife. He'll think he got her pregnant. Nobody will know any better. Everything will be fixed. Uriah's an upright man, does not end up being with his wife. As a result, David's next step is he has him killed on the battlefield. And then he marries her and he thinks he's fixed all the problems. Not the case. But listen to what happens. 2 Samuel 12, verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I think we need to understand this. Our sin impacts other people. There's a sense of multiplication. It gets messy. When I do premarital counseling had three weddings this summer, a fourth one coming up. One of the things I stress, and they can all testify to it, divorce should never be an option on the table when you say I do. Regardless of this exception clause that Jesus appears to give, regardless of Paul speaking of uh, this particular uh, example of desertion, at the end of the day, you don't enter into marriage thinking that divorce is a possibility. Because here's what happens, I think, in our culture with divorce. It's the notion that divorce will make everything easy. It'll fix the problem. And that's not the case. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's warning them that they had such a low view of marriage, such a, a low view of the idea of divorce. 
Well, do you downplay the impact of sin on others? We have a really bad self-absorbed tendency with sin. That my sin impacts me. Uh, wrong. It impacts everybody. In some capacity. Sin has it. It just stretches out all over the, the place. So we see the problem of sin, but also we, we, we see the initial intent with Moses and God is it's to protect the spouse. What they did is they used Moses as the excuse, but they missed the point of what Moses was doing. I've known people who have sold a house and ended up buying that house again. I've known people who've sold a car and down the road ended up getting that car back. And one of the potential problems that we were seeing with these first century, the Jews, is they thought that they could get rid of their spouse and maybe they would have seller's remorse. And down the road, maybe another marriage or two later, I'm going to go back. You know what? Maybe it wasn't as bad as I thought. She's better than the last two wives I've been married to. I'll go get her again. And God's like, I'm not going to have any of that. You are making a mockery of the marital covenant. So Deuteronomy 24.4 says this, So then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And what he's telling them is they need to slow down. They need to think through what they're doing. They need to, to be careful because this is a big deal. Once you cross that line, there's no turning back. Now, the Greek where it says makes her commit adultery seems like, well, how is he making her commit adultery since he's the one that's, that's uh, having the divorce? Uh, the, the Greek would probably be better translated, it exposes her to adultery. And what that means, and we need to appreciate this, first century, how easy was it to be a woman? Not that easy. That's why in the book of Acts, what was the big deal with a widow? Got to take care of the widows because they didn't have access to jobs as easy. They didn't have access. So one of the ways that you would live and survive as a woman is you would have to get what? Married. But now that they've been pushed out of the marriage covenant by their, their husband, they would need to probably get remarried to live. And, and he's, he's saying, well, once you've done that, when these, all these unbiblical divorces that are taking place, you're now creating a bunch of adulterous relationships from the inception. That's what we see, that God hates divorce. He's underscoring that this is serious. That just as divorce has very limited exceptions, I would argue then remarriage has very limited exceptions. And what he's doing is he's challenging their weak view of marriage and divorce. That an unbroken covenant of marriage is meant to be until death do us part. Well, do you see what Jesus is making a big deal about this? You see that there's consequences for our actions. This is a big deal. And we're to be different. We're to be different than the world. That our divorce rates should not rival the divorce rates that we see in the culture within the church. But they do. So my daughter, I, I officially have a senior. Wow, she's not in here, so I can talk away about her. She's not sure what she wants to do yet, career-wise. She's not even sure yet on college. And the one thing I keep stressing with her is don't make it out 
like these decisions are necessarily forever. Now, I have stressed, because she did really good with school, that first round of financial help, wherever you go, that won't follow you if you go somewhere and then you decide to come back home. So you, you, you do need to take kind of serious where you go, but even if you go somewhere and you think it's the right place and you're there for a semester or there for a year and it ends up not being the right place, you can always come back to a local college. It's, it's not the end all. Likewise, uh, your major... You don't have to know exactly what you want to do when you start college. Uh, you can change your mind. Who here has changed their major when they were in college? Raise your hand. Yeah. It, it's just common. You, you do. You get there. You're 18, 19 years old. And you're like, you know what? I, I was going to be a doctor. Yeah, I don't even know what was going on there. I'm a gagger and I hate blood. Let's pick something that's never gross. So, so you can change your major. And likewise, I mean, careers. You graduate college, you go into your career. Do people change their careers? All the time. All the time. And those things, I think it's, it's accurate and true. It's not the end all and be all. It's not forever. Marriage is not like that though, friends. It's not an easy move on. It's not, hey, I can try something different. As I said, man, I, I stress that so much in the premarital counseling. Even to the point of saying, hey, if you don't want to marry this person, don't do it. Like, I pushed that. Not that I'm trying to not have them get married, but once they're up there with me and they say I do, nothing should separate that apart from one of them dying. And I think Jesus is confronting that. That divorce should and I mean, like I said, it's just because of Jesus' exception. I say it's barely an option, and that's after you've really strived and fought and worked and, and really, and yet the one person just refuses to be repentant, refuses to salvage the marriage. We need to have that kind of view of marriage because we need to have that kind of view of God. Couple, three points of application. One, there are some of you here today who have sinned in this area, have had an unbiblical divorce, have had an unbiblical remarriage. I get that. I understand. It's inevitable when I look at the size of this room. And first of all, what I want to stress is there is grace and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That you and I, as children of God, are unfaithful and he forgives us. We do it wrong with divorce and remarriage. God can forgive you. I don't want to numb the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but I also want you to realize that there's grace and mercy in Christ and that your, your, your past sins don't define you. Christ does. Secondly, I want us to take serious marriage. Single people, all the way to engaged people, don't take lightly the covenant of marriage. Don't settle for anything less. Don't look at marriage with an out clause. Think of when I say I do, it's until I die or Christ returns. And I think third, and this is for all you married people here, invest in your marriage. Invest in your marriage. If you're married, there's very few, if anything, apart from your relationship with Jesus, 
that should be more valuable, more important to you than your marital relationship. It's a gift from God. Don't take it for granted. Fight for it. Fight to be faithful. Put boundaries in your life where you don't put yourself in situations where adultery can even become in a, a, a possibility in your life. Pray for your marriage. Here's a practical application. Not this Saturday, but next Saturday, we have an upcoming marriage conference. We would love for you to be a part of it. It's 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., right, Andy? 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Doesn't cost anything, right? Okay, I'm making sure I read everything right. Come. And, and, and one of the things we promise, you are not going to have to answer questions to anybody else. So we're not going to break out into sessions, and you're going to have to meet some couple that you've never met at church and say, hey, he snores when he sleeps. You don't have to do any of that. <laughs> but no, I'm being serious. Like, unless you have a conflict, like, I really would encourage you to do stuff like this for your marriage. Friends, we need to be the ones because God has to raise the bar. Stop being the culture. Have the attitude of Christ on the subject. To have an exalted view of God and marriage. To view divorce as the, the very random, very small percentage exception within the church. Let's pray. God, we come before you right now. Uh, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for forgiveness. We thank you that even when we make catastrophic mistakes and sin against you, you forgive us and you provide grace and mercy. I do pray for anybody here that this particular sermon really brought conviction to their heart as they've made some decisions that have led to uh, their current state in life. I pray you give them wisdom and discernment. I pray also, though, that you would help them to realize that their, their past sins don't define them, but you do. I do pray for all of our marriages that you would protect them, that we would fight hard to salvage and preserve our marriages. I pray for any marriage right now that's on shaky grounds, God, that you would use this as a reset button, that they would really think through, even if some of them have been considering, even maybe beginning to talk to lawyers about the possibility of divorce, that they would, that they would take a step back and realize that that's not your intent for their marriage. I, I do pray, God, that anybody here who is single, Lord, and as they're looking at the future of maybe one day finding a spouse, that you would use this as a foundational principle that uh, when they, if in your providence, allow them to be married, that when they say, I do, it would be forever. We thank you, God, that you are a God who is forever with us, that you will never divorce our covenant with you. Lord, for you are the one that entered into that covenant, and you will make sure it comes to fruition. We pray in Jesus' name.